0: listening to ohio v the world an ohio history podcast the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the buckeye state subscribe to the show on itunes and stitcher don't forget to rate and review us join the conversation now at facebook
1: now here's your host alex hasty
2: Welcome back, everybody. It's Episode 6, Rutherford B. Hayes versus the World. Today we're going to be talking about Central Ohio's only president, Rutherford B. Hayes, from Delaware, Ohio. Delaware, about 25 miles north of Columbus. Hayes is one of our most overlooked presidents, and we'll explain with the help of four great guests um, today why that is. Hayes is the 19th president. Today he ranks in kind of the bottom half of most rankings. And we think he should be bumped up a little bit. His years in the White House are responsible for restoring the country's faith in the chief executive. He's free from incompetence and scandal that plagued the previous two presidents, Johnson and Grant, respectively. We're going to hear from guests from Fremont, Ohio, Atlanta, Georgia, Columbus, and Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, This season has been a blast. We've had guests from all over the country join us, and we hope you're really enjoying Season 5, Ohio and the Presidency. It's certainly the most research that we put into a season. Uh, and seeing how many of you guys are listening is really awesome. It makes it worth it, so thanks. A special shout-out today goes to Stephen Ortlib. Uh, Steven wrote us, uh, he found the show this spring. He delivers fruit and lives in the Dayton area. Drives all day making deliveries, but he let me know when he emailed me at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Emailed me to buy an Ohio V the World t-shirt, which you all should do. They're super soft, high quality, uh, from our friends at Mysterioso Rock Art. Shout-out to Rob Hedge at Mysterioso he made our logo and is an all-around great American. But Steve emailed me this week and told me that he had binged, found the show, and he had binged all 60-plus episodes this spring. Uh, that's like 75 hours of Ohio V. The World. Uh, I think this is our 63rd episode. We did the, the math, not counting a few two-parters that we've had. But Steve, the t-shirt is in the mail, and, and I hope you wear it with pride, so thanks a lot. So we talk about Rudd Hayes today, his legacy has been tarnished by two things. One, the perception, is a pretty important one, that he didn't even win his election. In 1876, rather fraud behaves, as he was known by his detractors. We'll talk with the author-historian Roy Morris, the author of the excellent book about the 1876 election called Fraud of the Century. Uh, Roy, in the books uh, from the famous publishing house, Simon & Schuster, uh, check out the link in the show notes to buy that book. But Roy will discuss the circumstances surrounding probably our most controversial election and whether or not the election was stolen by Hayes and Company. Uh, And we'll also look at the obvious comparisons to the most controversial election of our lifetime, the election of 2000 between George Bush and Al Gore. Both elections come down to one vote from a Supreme Court justice. They center around the state of Florida, of course. Also, we'll sit down with Dustin McLaughlin, the historian at the Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Library and Museum in Fremont, Ohio, our country's first presidential library, an awesome place in northwest Ohio, Spiegel Grove. As the property is known, one of my favorite historic sites uh, in the state, and it's beautiful, it's educational, and, and Miss Ohio View of the World, and I stopped by there a few years ago uh, for a couple hours on a trip to Lake Erie for the weekend, and I can't wait to get back. There's a link in the show notes to their museum, rbhays.org, uh, and all the awesome stuff they have online for you to watch as well. You, your kids, there's good stuff on there, uh, but check out that site. Dustin's going to talk about and debunk the idea that Hayes is single-handedly responsible for ending Reconstruction. Reconstruction in, in every textbook goes from 1865, the end of the war, to 1877 when Hayes takes office. And it's true that Reconstruction officially ended in 1877, but that was a fact that was set in motion a few years before Hayes entered the White House. We'll discuss the end of Reconstruction and some of the myths that place all the blame for its failure and its end on Rutherford Hayes. But that's enough chit chat. We got a bunch of guests and a bunch of stuff to get to. It's going to be another deep dive. It's episode six, Rutherford B. Hayes vs. the World. Rutherford B. Hayes falls victim to being overlooked because he's one of the Gilded Age's bearded presidents. Starting with Grant through Benjamin Harrison, most of whom were from Ohio. And Hayes did have a pretty awesome beard from the Civil War on. Grover Cleveland was a mustachioed president, but, but he counts it's part of this group. But Hayes was an incredible person, lived an awesome life. And our guest, Zach Taylor, an, an economist and professor at Georgia Tech, he joined us to discuss Hayes' presidency, and he'll join us on a couple episodes this season, because Zach is super knowledgeable and really fun to talk to. Uh, he gave his thoughts. On why Hayes is often overlooked.
3: Hayes comes across to us as really boring for lack of a better term uh, and that's because he wanted it that way. Hayes really wanted a dignified, uh, dull, uneventful presidency. He took the job seriously and he just wanted it to be sort of very professionally done. So he he didn't, was not a headline seeker. He did not go around making bombastic Uh, comments or big, bold uh, moves, because that's not how we saw the presidency. In fact, that's not how a lot of Americans saw or wanted the presidency during the uh, 1800s. Congress was supposed to be where all the politics happens, and the president was supposed to implement Congress's will, and only really assert himself when he saw uh, mistakes, errors, or unconstitutional moves, things that were bad for the country. So this is what Hayes was trying to get back to, because obviously uh, Lincoln in the Civil War, and then Andrew Johnson, and even Grant, who agreed with uh, Hayes, had created a sort of larger-than-life presidencies, and Hayes wanted to get back to, to, to basics. So he, he comes across as boring, because that's the presidency he tried, tried to build. But if you look at him as a person, oh my God, his life was amazing. He went to these top universities and schools. He was into uh, sports and hunting and hiking and travel. He went to all these parts of the United States that were still very edgy and dangerous. Uh, He fought in the war, went through through these fantastic uh, battles, was a great uh, medal-winning military leader. And then, of course, he uh, sat in Congress, was governor, became president. So if you had lived the life of Rutherford v. Hayes, you would not look at your life as being boring, although even in person, to people who were not his intimates, he would sort of present himself in a sort of uh, bland, formal way. He sort of reserved his adventure, his humor, his uh, to intimates, to his friends and to his family. So that gives, it kind of explains why we forget Hayes, because there, there were two of them, the one he presented to the public and the one that he, the life that he actually lived.
2: Rutherford Hayes is born in the pioneer town of Delaware, Ohio in 1822. He comes from modest Western beginnings. His family was an established New England family, but his mom and dad moved to the Ohio country to start a new life. Unfortunately, his his father would die before Rudd was born uh, a few months. Same thing would happen to President Bill Clinton. His dad died three months before he was born, just like Hayes. But he was born and lived in a house on the corner of Union and William Street in downtown Delaware today, we talked to Dustin McLaughlin from the Presidential Library about his early years in Delaware, Ohio.
0: The Hayeses were from Brattleboro, Vermont, and his mom's side was from Wilmington, Vermont. Um, and they had made the decision, we, we, uh, because of downturns in, in the economy, they had decided to make a trip to Delaware, Ohio, 1817, after his father, Rutherford, had come to Ohio earlier to kind of scope out a place to land. Yeah. Uh, and they chose Delaware. They bought up some land, started a few businesses there, really set up shop there and, and started to raise their two, well, three surviving kids. Eventually, a third, uh, their oldest son would die. But uh, their, their, their two surviving kids and then the third one, Rutherford, who would be born after uh, Rutherford c junior which happened to be his dad you know died just before rutherford was born
2: i travel up to delaware ohio a couple times a month it's the fastest growing richest county in ohio i think it's like the 20th fastest growing county in the country i go to court in delaware on union street it's less than two blocks from the boyhood home of rutherford hayes you might not recognize it now because it's a bp gas station there's been a plaque at the gas station since like 1926 Uh, But finally, last year, they did put up a really big, beautiful statue to Hayes a few blocks away in in Delaware. Uh, It hasn't been pulled down yet, I don't think. Uh, The high school where my second cousin is a star swimmer in Delaware is called Hayes High School. There's really only four major whether historic sites or statues, buildings, one place in South America named after Hayes, which is really not a lot for a president. We've already discussed two of them, the Presidential Library and, and Rutherford B. Hayes High School in Delaware. But as Zach told us earlier, Rutherford B. Hayes is super well-educated. He was a valedictorian at Kenyon College in nearby Gambier, a great liberal arts school uh, outside of Mount Vernon. It's about 40 miles from Delaware, and Hayes used to walk home after some of his semesters were over pretty crazy. He'd enjoy his breaks down in Columbus from school at his sister Fanny's house uh, and, and was really all over central Ohio as a young man. But we talked to Dustin McLaughlin about Hayes' distinguished academic career.
0: He started out in uh, preparatory schools in Norwalk and then in uh, Isaacs Webb School in Connecticut. Uh, then he went to Kenyon College in Gambier, Ohio. He was considering Yale. Um, his mom had kind of talked him into staying close to Ohio, and really wanted to stay uh, and be an Ohio man as a way, you know, or a Western man. Uh, and he decided to go to Gambier um, at Kenyon College.
2: And he does graduate
0: there in 1842, and he graduates as the valedictorian. So he does have a, pretty, a stellar collegiate career, uh, headed up a, a literary club there. And after graduating from there, he, he does for about 10 months work with uh, a guy named Thomas Sparrow uh, as sort of his apprentice in law. Wanted to use that as his gateway into being a lawyer and decided he really wasn't learning enough from, from Thomas Sparrow. And he uh, discusses with his family and with Sardis, his uncle, and decides to move off to, uh, to Harvard Law School for a year. And then he ends up staying for about two years uh, to get his law degree there. You know, And up until uh, Barack Obama, he was the only president to have the
2: Harvard Law degree. Hayes becomes a lawyer and he moves to Ohio's biggest city, Cincinnati, in 1850. He studied law with a Sparrow, like he, uh, Dustin mentioned, in Columbus, and then went to Harvard Law School. Then practiced in Fremont, Ohio, in northwest Ohio, for years where his uncle lived. We discussed 1850 Cincinnati, an important city in the slavery struggle and a business center, then known as Porkopolis or the Queen City as it's still known today. Go back and listen to our episode last season, Ohio vs. the Abolitionists. We talk about 1850 Cincinnati and how vibrant it was and how important it was in the American discussion. Uh, when we talked about Harriet Beecher Stowe, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Dustin takes us through his move to the Ohio River metropolis and his slow-rising legal career, including his defense of freed slaves under the fugitive slave law.
0: After Harvard Law School, he was advised to go to a small town where he wouldn't have as much competition. He could kind of drum up a lot of uh, business he picked fremont because his uncle was there and his uncle could give him business and there was a lot of competition in that small town and he did it for about four or five years you know made the best of it he had a had a cousin who he became good friends with john peasy and he was um, doing a lot of fun things there i guess for what he could do he wasn't getting as much business as he had hoped he had decided after time that he was too young to spend time in a small town There weren't as many prospects specifically for women, of course. He uh, decided that the advice he had received wasn't really helping him much anyway so why not go to a bigger city where there was more things to do for a young guy in his 20s who is still interested in finding a wife and made the decision that Cincinnati was where he would go you know he had some connections there he had uh, John Heron whom he could share an office with and Heron is the uh, would be the father of Taft's wife yeah Yeah, Nellie Tapp, Cincinnati, which was obviously a border town. It was probably the most uh, bustling town in Ohio at the time. He started to build his career there, and it was slow going for a while. Eventually got a breakout case as a city defender when he was uh, appointed to defend Nancy Ferrer, a woman who was accused of killing basically two families. She had poisoned multiple members of the family to the point where only the dad and the youngest child really were surviving he she was guilty you know she was very guilty and hayes knew it and and there was nothing much that he could do to really uh get her um a a not guilty uh a verdict but decides instead after some time that the reason why she may have done this was because she just wasn't quite mentally capable of understanding what she was doing. He, uh, steps in, tries to get her at least the, the death sentence commuted for, uh, you know, insanity and does succeed in that. Uh, that's, that really is the, the case that puts him on the map. He really becomes uh, a defense lawyer, defended fugitive slaves in the era of the fugitive slave law. Um, he claims later in life that he was a part of thirty to forty of these fugitive slave cases, and he defended a, a man named Lewis who had uh, escaped from Kentucky and was in uh, living in Columbus and was eventually caught uh, along with James Burney, who was another uh, famous yeah. um, abolitionist and we 'll never know if they would have been successful in in saving Lewis because Lewis decided to uh, get up in the middle of the case and and run out of the courtroom, and he actually does escape that way. Uh, The other case that's famous is that of Rosetta Armstead, another slave, a girl who had been taken across the border, not by her owner, but someone who was working on behest of her owner. She also had gone, she had gone through three court cases. And on the third court case at the commissioner's court, Hayes, along with Sam and Chase, Um, defend her, and she is set free. So in addition to some of the the criminal cases, these are the more high-profile cases. He also was elected as the um, city solicitor for for three years as well, uh, right before the Civil War.
2: It's in Cincinnati, Ohio, that Hayes meets his future wife, Lucy Webb. Lucy was nine years younger than him, and we'll discuss her in more detail in a later First Ladies episode this season. He's a daughter of, in the prominent Webb family. And Hayes was a bit of a ladies' man, Rutherford was, in his bachelor days. He's a good-looking dude. And we posted some pictures before, uh, and we will again. But he looks like, like a young Drew Brees, the New Orleans Saints quarterback, uh, without the birthmark. When he's living in Boston uh, while at Harvard, he writes in his journal, and I quote, The proud and pious women of Boston, none of whom could be a bell in Columbus. He, he always had some issues with, with the New Englanders. Uh, it's a Western man, but it seems that he was destined to marry an Ohio woman. Dustin takes us through the love connection of Rutherford B. Hayes and Lucy Ware Webb, the first First Lady to have a college degree.
0: She's from the Chillicothe area, um, and but her family is from Kentucky. Basically, had met her because of the acquaintance of the moms, the moms of the of Lucy and the mom of Rutherford. Um, thought that they would make a good match. Um, And so he actually meets Lucy when she's 16 and he's 25. You get the sense from diary accounts that Hayes was very interested in Lucy at that point, but he refused to let himself get too interested because she was a little too young at that point. He does have other romances. One in particular, her name was Helen Kelly. Uh, He was courting her for a while and then kind of thought that she was a little bit too much of a flirt, but he fell in, he fell in with her nonetheless, uh, and she kind of breaks his heart. Uh, after that, he makes the decision that he was going to only go for girls who were very much different than Helen Kelly, uh, and he rekindles his relationship with Lucy. Uh, at that point, she was old enough for him to, to be interested in. Very quickly, they start to write letters back and forth, and within two years, uh, they're married.
2: Five of the eight Ohio presidents serve with distinction in the Civil War. Hayes was no different. General Hayes, he'd become a two-star general. He's brave. He's often wounded, more so than than any of our other Ohio presidents. He gets roughed up in the war. But Hayes also serves in the 23rd Ohio Volunteer Infantry, a unit we discussed before because it has two presidents in it, General Hayes and, and Major William McKinley. Hayes was McKinley's mentor during and after the war. They serve in West Virginia, which is important to Hayes' future, in Ohio politics because it was the last line of defense to Ohio. I see battles General Robert E. Lee in the early years in West Virginia, the war kind of before Lee was this famous general we all know, but Ohioans followed these battles in wild and wonderful West Virginia. They learned the names of the leaders and the heroes of those battles, uh, West Virginia, which would become a state in 1863. Hayes is at the Battle of Buffington Island in 1863, the only major battle to take place on Ohio soil when Confederate General Morgan uh, raided the Buckeye State. Go back and listen to our uh, show from our first season, Ohio versus the Confederacy, for that crazy story. Uh, Dustin talks about Hayes' rise to general and his election to U.S. Congress at the end of the war.
0: Hayes, uh, by his own account, he was injured four times. The worst injury was at South Mountain. Uh, when he was shot in the arm um, and was left in the middle of the, the battlefield for some time. You kind of see that a lot in the Civil War films, you know, when they go back and the guy's in no man's land and no one can get to him. And he was kind of there for a while, according to his accounts, uh, actually talking to a Confederate soldier. You get another Civil War cliche where they find out that they, you know, are friendly with each other and talk to each other and they give each other's messages. If I survive, you know, take this to my family. Um, but eventually, the line uh, moves enough to where Hayes could yell for his men to pull him back, and so they do. They pull him back. He does have that injury in his arm. You know, we uh, again from Civil War memory, we have this uh, idea that if you have some sort of a, 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 an injury in one of your uh, uh, leg or your your appendages or whatever, they're going to just cut it off, uh, and that might have been a, a scare for him. Uh, one of the things that. I think, is misconstrued from the, from the record of the Civil War is that oftentimes we think it's because of the gangrene or the, the infection, when really the reason why those amputations often took place was because it would crush the bone and they didn't know how to like fix the bone. Uh, luckily, that missed that part of it, so he didn't lose his arm. But that was the most, uh, the worst injury that he received uh, in the Civil War. Uh, Going back to your initial question, he, he goes in as a major uh, in the war. He does become a judge advocate for a time, but then comes back to active duty and starts to uh, get promoted in his uh, ranks. And he becomes a brigadier general. After his battles in the Shenandoah Valley, he is sent off a little bit further west as a brigadier general. And then when he's mustered out of the army, they give him the honorary. Major General's a two-star general. He is offered the chance to run for Congress and at this point, he f- he's had quite a few years in the Civil War life. He's um, realizing that perhaps things are starting to get good for the Union side. Maybe things are going to end soon. Um, and he decides to uh, put his name in there. His political handler in a lot of ways was a guy named William Henry Smith, who was uh, a, a, a newspaper man. They seemingly orchestrated this response because Hayes wasn't going to leave the Civil War to go work to become a congressman. He had uh, written this letter to William Henry Smith, where he says, any man who would leave his post to go electioneer for Congress ought to be scalped. And so that phrase was what William Henry Smith would sort of pass along to a lot of people. So it's his way of running for Congress without actually running for Congress, because that would resonate with voters. That's how he runs in that term in 1864. And he does win. Interestingly enough, he doesn't actually have to report to Congress until the war is actually over.
2: Rudd Hayes serves two uneventful terms in the U.S. Congress, and he's ready to get out of politics. But then he's put up to run for governor in 1867, and he wins another narrow election. Just like in Congress, when he won by 2,000 votes, he wins by another like you know 2,500 votes. This would be a theme in Hayes's life, narrow elections. We talked with Dustin McLaughlin, the historian from the Hayes Presidential Library and Museum, about his record three terms as the governor of Ohio.
0: In his initial election, he was seen as the radical Republican, which some people may not realize, you know, looking back. Uh, He had spent uh, time in Congress, as as we just talked about. He had worked around or worked around uh, guys like Thaddeus Stevens There's stories of his sons. Kind of buddying up to Thaddeus Stevens because he was so they were so intrigued by him, so there were there was this deep connection with the radical Republican wing of the Republican party uh, Hayes slowly comes to the opinion for black voting rights. Um, for a while he wasn't, he was sort of on the fence and he had these different ideas that today would seem be bad ideas, things like literacy tests and things like that. But he slowly comes to the idea that uh, black uh, men over 21, which was the thing at the time, should be voters. Um, and so he comes back to Ohio and really campaigns with that uh, voting rights. Once he becomes governor, he was appalled that Ohio tried to rescind this ratification of the 14th Amendment. And yeah. then as governor, he works to try to get Ohio to pass the 15th Amendment. Uh, some of the other things that he focuses on were uh, prison reform. He did not like that prisoners were all thrown together regardless of their fractions. He, he wanted to split those up based on severity of crime. He wanted to focus on reduced sentences for good behavior. In Ohio, of course, he's, he's well known for being the governor who establishes the uh, land-grant school of uh, agriculture and mechanical college.
2: Hayes was integral in the founding of The Ohio State University. My precious, precious Buckeyes, still holding out hope to see Justin Fields and, and the Buckeyes play this season amid the virus, Hope is dwindling, but maybe, just maybe, they can, they can figure it out. We talked to David Simmons, a historian and editor at the former Timeline magazine, now called Echoes Magazine, from the Ohio History Connection. And I implore you to get a membership to the Ohio History Connection. Not only do you get to get in free to the 50-plus sites around the state, like the Hayes Presidential Library in Fremont, but you also get the world's only Ohio History Magazine, Echoes Magazine, six times a year. It's worth the 40 bucks or whatever right there. OhioHistory.org/join. Uh, you will not be sorry. I, I've written some articles in there, and David just wrote a recent article about the founding of Ohio State and focused on Governor Hayes's role.
4: Beginning with David Todd, one of the, the Civil War governors in Ohio, four different governors urged the legislature to take up the cause of this new institution. And during his first term of 1868 to 69, Governor Worthaferd B. Hayes also joined the others in encouraging the General Assembly, but it didn't actually happen until his second term. Part of the issue was that existing schools like Ohio University and Miami University were lobbying hard for the money to come to them in terms of the land grant proceeds, but Reuben Cannon, a wealthy farmer from Aurora in Portage County, introduced the legislation for creating a new college in January 1870 and its passage on March 22nd is considered Ohio State's founding date. The initial name was the Ohio Agricultural and Mechanical College, and in 1878, the legislature officially changed the name to the Ohio State University. With v, that, that was there uh, right from the beginning. Governor Hayes was responsible for appointing 19 members of the first Board of Trustees, and these guys were responsible for selecting a site for the school, defining a course of study, and determining the faculty. There was a guy named Thomas Mendenhall, who was an early professor of chemistry at the university. And he gave Hayes a lot of credit for what he called the wisdom, good judgment, and fairness that he showed in his selection of trustees. And by October 1870, the trustees decided on the Neal farm on Worthington Road, northwest of Columbus, in part because it had a natural spring for a source of drinking water.
2: A third site that's still standing that honors Hayes is Hayes Hall on the Ohio State campus. Built in 1893, it's still there, the oldest building on OSU's campus. Hayes spent a number of years on the board at OSU after his presidency. David Simmons walks us through Hayes' continued impact on that great university, and also how he saved Mirror Lake during his retirement years.
4: Um, After he left the the presidency, Governor Joseph Foraker appointed Hayes as a trustee of the university in 1887. Hayes also had a hand in preserving a campus landmark known as Mirror Lake. The city of Columbus built a trunk sewer line across the campus in 1891, and that effectively destroyed the spring that fed the lake. Hayes' strenuous objections convinced other trustees to back his demand that the city restore the lake and commit funds to maintaining it.
2: So Hayes was the original savior of Mirror Lake.
4: That's it. All those, all those uh, celebrations and festivals. I can thank <laughs> Rutherford B. Hayes. So when he became a trustee at Ohio State, Hayes continued to promote manual training. State funding finally became available in 1891 for a manual training program and a building at Ohio State. Hayes was placed in charge of the building uh, to house it and was in Cleveland searching for a director of the program in January 1893 when his fatal final illness struck. But he lived long enough to learn that the building would be named for him, but he was never actually inside the building.
2: Back to Hayes' political career, he's the governor of Ohio for a third time in 1876, as the country celebrates its centennial, 100 years of America. Huge celebrations are scheduled across the country, the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia chief among those events, but 1876 was not a great year for the 100-year-old country. The economy's in the tank. Custer and the army suffered a shocking and complete defeat at the hands of Native Americans that summer at Little Bighorn a defeat that would spark years of increased bloodshed in the West. And General Grant's presidency is being dogged by questions of corruption and scandal uh, and violence in the South, uh, race, race violence in the South. Uh, just not a great year. To be honest, it wasn't a good year to be a Republican running for president. Uh, we talk with our guest, author, historian Roy Morris, the author of Fraud of the Century, his great book about the 1876 election, we talked to Roy about the bummer that was the year 1876, our country's centennial.
1: By 1876, Republicans had controlled the White House for 16 years. Uh, the last eight years, of course, uh, Ulysses S. Grant had been president, and that uh, I'm sure y'all have gone over this in, in in your other programs. But you know, there's some so many scandals in the Grant administration. People were were really pretty pretty cynical and fed up with with uh, with him and the, and the government. So the Democrats really focused on the issue of reform. So by 1876, people, people were ready for reform, and, and the Democrats ended up having uh, coming up with the perfect, uh, what they thought anyway was the perfect candidate to combat that.
2: That candidate was reform-minded governor of New York, Samuel Tilden. The Democrat was popular across the country for his efforts to stamp out corruption in politics. Roy Morris talks to us about the Democrats' dream candidate, Centennial Sam, in the summer of 1876.
1: Well, Samuel Tilden was the governor of New York. He was uh, 62 years old. Uh, he was independently wealthy, so so there was no suggestion or or worry that that you know, he would be corrupt that way. And he'd really uh, come to prominence in in New York and, and the nation by by leading uh, the the efforts to get rid of uh, the Boss Tweed ring in New York City, which uh, controlled the city and the state of New York, and was was an incredibly corrupt political machine and and so Tilden, by leading the efforts to to get rid of a tweed one election as governor himself by the time eighteen seventy six rolled around he was he was the perfect uh, candidate to lead a reform movement and as 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 governor of new york he controlled you know the most populous state in the union which had i believe thirty five electoral votes so so he was a, he, he was in a good position to uh, as the Democrats thought, to, to be the the perfect candidate.
2: The Republicans go to their convention in Cincinnati, Ohio, Hayes' hometown at this point, really. It's held in June at the Cincinnati Exposition Center. It's now known as the beautiful and still-standing Cincinnati Music Hall and over the Rhine. Go check that building out if you're ever in OTR. It's massive. It's gorgeous. Um, something they only could have built, really, in the Gilded Age in a prosperous city like Cincinnati. But Hayes is not a favorite. James G. Blaine, the former Speaker of the House, Senator from Maine. Grant's protege, the powerful Senator from New York, Roscoe Conkling, that we discussed in so much detail with Candace Millard in our James Garfield episode back in May. Those are the two favorites. Um, and go, go listen to that Garfield episode. It's one of the favorite ones we've ever done. But Hayes and his handlers, they have the home field advantage. And although Hayes acts like he doesn't want it, he's happy being governor of Ohio, he does want it. He wants to be president. Uh, he just won't say anything publicly about it. His nomination is seconded in a speech by former Ohio Senator and nearly President Benjamin Wade at the convention. Uh, We'll talk about that near presidency in our uh, next episode. And Dustin McLaughlin is back this time to talk about Rutherford B. Hayes, his surprising win of the Republican nomination in 1876 in the Queen City of Cincinnati.
0: Yeah, he's the dark horse. It's, It's hard to know how much Cincinnati played to his advantage, other than the fact that he would have had more uh, support um, outside the walls, Uh, some of the people who were just there as spectators. Ohio is chosen less for Hayes, of course, and more because of the importance of Ohio in a general election. He does sit it out, you know, he's in Columbus. He refuses to go uh, there. His son goes. Webb. Uh, his other family members are not there. He's the guy who, what they would call a favorite son of Ohio at the time. He knew the Ohio delegation would go there, and at least on the first ballot, throw all their votes to him. Um, again, his friend William Henry Smith is telling him, "You've got a shot at this because your two can the two front runners are James Blaine and Roscoe Conkling, who hate each other." And Robert Ingersoll is the one who gave a speech for Blaine in the convention and really sorts of, sort of electrifies the crowd. I Many thought that he would be nominated that night, but due to a, due to lighting in the hall, they decided to wait until the next day for the vote perhaps perhaps some emotions cooled at that point. And uh Blaine does not get the, the numbers he needs to be nominated. And over time you see through these ballots that Conkling supporters are not going to give in to Blaine and Blaine's supporters are not going to give in to Conkling. So they're looking for another candidate, someone who who could um unite these, these these groups. And it does become Hayes. And a lot of the reason why it's Hayes is because. He's unobjectionable, really, to anybody. He uh, is from Ohio, which is an important swing state, has that Civil War record, the congressional record and things like that 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 put him there. But in reality, he is either one of two things. You can call him the uh, compromise candidate, or you can call him really the anti blaine candidate. Uh, the guy who all of the non-Blaine supporters wanted just because they didn't want Blaine and they knew some of the other guys weren't going to make it. But well, one way or the other, uh, Hayes becomes the guy who everyone else settles on.
2: And the campaign of, of 1876 is contentious as any in American history, but it's not nearly as active as, say, you know, the example of the 1840 campaign from our last episode. There's no big rallies, no big candidate speeches. This was old-school presidential campaigns. Hayes was not going to be drawn out of his house in Columbus or the state house where he worked. Dustin tells us about the 1876 campaign,
0: and he doesn't do much of anything. Um, Matter of fact, um, neither does neither does Tilden, the Democratic nominee. Parties themselves are the ones who really push these candidates. He doesn't do much. Matter of fact, it may be the impetus why Garfield uh, does his. front porch campaign, Uh, maybe in response to the fact that you got to do something because Hayes didn't do anything. He stays quiet. Matter of fact, when people are asking him questions, he says, I wrote a nomination letter. I wrote a letter after you nominated me. This is what I stand for. If you want to know what I stand for, go read the letter.
2: But the two candidates' surrogates were active and aggressive. The Democrats could smell victory for the first time since before the Civil War. The Republicans still had their one trump card to play during the election season. The war. Saying things like "vote as you shot," a vast majority of Southerners voted Democratic. They had forever Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson. The Republicans would go to their bag of tricks for the tactic that had worked every election since Lincoln's reelection in eighteen sixty-four. It was a tactic known as the bloody shirt.
1: Well, it goes it goes back specifically to there was a Massachusetts congressman named Benjamin Butler who had been a, a Union general in the Civil War and. And was actually the the wartime governor of Louisiana, which and when he was known as Beast Butler because he was so strict on the community and Butler, in a speech in Congress, pulled out a a shirt that he said was bloodstained, a shirt belonging to a federal bill collector uh, who had been horsewhipped by the Ku Klux Klan and so that that uh became the sort of political shorthand for Republicans accusing. Southerners and uh, of all being uh, uh, incredibly violent and racist and wanting to go back to the to the Civil War days, and so it became kind of a catchphrase, which meant to Northerners it, it kind of it meant you know remind people what they thought fought the war about and 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 the dangers of the of Southerners kind of falling back into their old ways. It was a, a catchphrase that actually was still in, in use and, and played a big role in the 1876 election.
2: The situation in the South was not good. Reconstruction was winding down. The South had elected a number of black congressmen, senators, uh, to dozens of positions in the state government. But during the Grant administration, the white majority had struck back against black suffrage, black rights, and reconstruction. You can go back and listen to our U.S. Grant vs. the World episode last month, but the U.S. had installed these reconstruction governments in the southern states until they had to be redeemed. These governors were backed up, these Republican governors, by federal troops. But in a matter of less than a decade, white Southerners had taken back their state governments. They were known as redeemer governments. White Democrats in places like Virginia and Mississippi, they had stopped the black vote with violence. Jim Crow was setting in. But in three states, the federal government had not given up on their Republican puppet governments. No matter how unpopular or even unrecognized their reign was in Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina. Remember those three states. Roy Morris discusses the situation with those three states, the three states that would play the most pivotal role in the 1876 election controversy.
1: Yeah, the, the, the three states in 1876 that, that still had Re- Reconstruction govern, governments were, uh, of course, Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana. Uh, that meant essentially that they had Republican uh, governors. They still had federal troops in place to to protect those governors and and other office holders the, the reconstruction governments had really come about during what was known as as uh, congressional reconstruction when when congress took over the lead and really installed very strict uh, kind of republican guideline governments and so they were obviously very unpopular with a lot of southerners who wanted who wanted their old democrats to be back in power and uh, and wanted the troops gone so that they could pass uh, whatever laws they, they wanted to specifically to to curtail uh, political and social rights for uh, for the African American community which w- while technically free was was still in you know in a very uh, perilous uh, position in in southern states so so those three states were the last, the last ones with Republican governors, and they were all coming up for election in 1876.
2: On November 7, 1876, America went to the polls. It was expected to be a close election. It was our country's closest in the history of the Electoral College. They would ultimately be separated by one electoral vote, one But as the results poured into Hayes' home in downtown Columbus, it was not looking good. New York, New Jersey, and Indiana were all northern states that were going for Tilden. And if Tilden sweeps the south, he'll win by 30 or 40 electoral votes. We picked the story up there with Roy Morris on election night 1876. We'll talk about some of its similarities to 2000, and we'll play a clip of, you know, the news media. I remember being up that night when they changed their call late on election night in 2000, which is exactly what the New York Times would do. To Hayes and Tilden in 1876,
1: you couldn't make this this kind of thing up. Yeah, on election night, it was it was obvious that that Tilden and the Democrats had a, had a huge lead. Hay, yeah, Hayes went to bed, and he was in Columbus, Ohio, of course, because he was you know the governor. He went to bed thinking he lost. His, his wife, uh, Lucy Hayes, went to bed early, said she had a headache, and so she went to bed. And pretty much everybody in the country went to bed. Uh, thinking that Tilden had had easily won the election, and then the uh, the crazy thing happened that uh, Daniel Sickles, who was a former congressman, a former uh, Union general in the Civil War, a really uh, colorful and, and controversial figure, he was in New York City and uh, Republican National Headquarters for in New York City uh, at the uh, Fifth Avenue Hotel. And Sickles had actually gone, gone to a play on Broadway and was coming home about midnight. And he thought he would stop in at the Republican headquarters and see how the election had gone. He'd been, of course, out of pocket for the last several hours. And when he got there, he thought it would be you know a real beehive of activity. When he got there, uh, there, there was only like one clerk there who was kind of packing, packing everything up. The uh, chairman of the Republican Party had already gone, gone upstairs to bed to get drunk. Mm-hmm. So, Sickle sat down at, at the desk of the Republican National Chairman, who's uh, named uh, Zachary Chandler. They started going through the returns. He had this the inspiration, uh, mathematical inspiration, or whatever. The way the returns were by by then, Tillman had uh, had 184 uh, electoral votes, and he needed 185 to be to be elected, and the the three, well, there are four states, uh, the three southern states I mentioned, Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana, and then the state of Oregon, uh, had had 20 electoral votes between them. And Sickles, you know, did the math, and he thought, well, if the Republicans carry all, all those states, then Hayes will have exactly 185 electoral votes and be elected. And so Sickles took it upon himself to send out telegrams to the republican governors in in the three southern states and said you know don't don't concede anything hold on to your states and we'll you know we'll win the election and so he sent the telegrams off now the new york times actually they were they were getting some some telegrams of their own from from uh, democratic leaders who were wondering what hap- what's happening with these three three last states? The New York Times reporter who who looked at those telegrams was a reporter named John Reed who had been a Union POW at Andersonville and he hated uh, Southerners as a result and so he he dashed over to the Republican headquarters to see what was going on. Essentially, the New York Times very influentially uh, their headline they changed their headline from from Tilden being elected to know, doubtful election and so from that moment on the actual post-election election had begun
4: right now is moving our earlier declaration of florida back to the too close to call column ah 25 very big electoral votes in the home state of the governor's brother jeff bush ...are hanging in the balance. This no longer is a victory for Vice President Gore. George Bush, governor of Texas, will become the 43rd president of the United States. George Walker Bush has won Florida's 25 electoral votes.
1: The vice president has recalled the governor and retracted his concession.
4: But this race is simply too close to call. And until the results, the recount is concluded and the results of Florida... Florida become official, our campaign continues. We hope and believe we have elected the next president of the United States. They're still counting, and I'm confident when it's all said and done, we will prevail.
2: The controversial election of 1876 became known to many currently living Americans because it was brought up so much during the 2000 election crisis between George W. Bush and Vice President Al Gore we asked Roy Morris to discuss some of those similarities between 2000 and 1876.
1: Well, the most obvious similarity is that, of course, the, the Democratic candidate in both elections won, won the most votes. Samuel Tilden in 1876 and, and Al Gore in 2000. Tilden actually had three times as many votes as as Al Gore did. Al, Al Gore uh, won the popular vote with, I think, 500,000 and Tilden had the equivalent of, of a million and a half vote uh, lead in, in the popular vote. And, uh, the, of course, the other similarity between those two gets down to the state of Florida, which was decisive in 2000 when the you know, Supreme Court s- stepped in to stopped the recount. In 1876, it was one of the three southern states that uh, had a disputed uh, election and, and two sets of returns. So in both cases, Florida played a pivotal role in the person who got the most votes not getting
2: elected. Daniel Sickles, the, the man who crunched those numbers, is a uniquely American story. Go buy the book Star-Spangled Scandal uh, about Congressman Sickles and the murder of the son of Francis Scott Key in broad daylight in 1859 in Washington. We discuss it in our episode about one of Sickles' lawyers, Lincoln's Secretary of War, Ohioan Edwin Stanton. That's season three, Ohio versus Civil War. But anyways, Sickles noticed that in three southern states, if the Republicans could win those states and Oregon, where they had a slight lead, Hayes would barely win the Electoral College, 185 to 184. They could hold those states, but they're currently losing. We talked about how close those three elections were and what the Republican strategy was to try and win those states back.
1: Yeah, they were they were very close. And, and Florida was the closest. Tilden, according to to the Democratic numbers, Tilden had carried Florida by, I think, 91 votes. In South Carolina, uh, Tilden was about 1,000 a, a votes ahead. But in Louisiana, which I think is a real, the real central thing, uh, Tilden was almost 8,000 votes ahead. So in, in essence, their, their argument was you know, Democrats in, in the South, in those three states, had intimidated Black voters either forcefully with violence or with threats of violence and kept them from going to the polls. Elections have to be certified by by what was no, then known as a returning board, uh, kind of election commission sort of thing, and these were uh, in these states were still uh, controlled by Republicans. The next few weeks, the Republican returning boards started going through and just sort of selectively throwing out whatever votes they didn't like, It's kind of like Florida in 2000. They threw out enough votes in all these three states. They reversed. Tilden's lead, and I put down the figures, let's say in Florida, they said he was ahead by 922 votes. And South Carolina, 889. And in Louisiana, Tilden went from being 8,000 votes ahead to almost 5,000 votes behind. So, So that was a total reversal of the election night figures.
2: There are irregularities in the vote count, especially in those three contested states of South Carolina, Louisiana, and of course, always, right, Florida. Massive voter intimidation and violence against African Americans in the weeks and days leading up to the election. What were called repeaters. Uh, In some parishes in Louisiana, there'd be like 900 registered voters, but then 1,200 votes would be cast out of that parish. Accusations of buying off voters and election board members on the right and on the left. It was a mess. We talked with Dustin McLaughlin from the Hayes Presidential Library and Museum about those voter irregularities in 1876.
0: The the Democrats, of course, would claim whatever we did, it wasn't going to offset what you were doing um, and their argument being things like ballot stuffing and things like that. Um, but what the Republicans were claiming is that here we have passage of amendments that allowed for the voting rights of black men. And yet there was all of this intimidation, especially in, in places like Louisiana. Uh, and these, these parishes that were far, were far removed from federal troops uh, that were, one, not seeing um, those numbers um, in the voting returns of black men. And we're seeing returns that were higher than the actual population of those parishes. Right. So there, was, there were things like that that were popping up. There was a lot of irregularities there. It's hard to know. I mean, we, we say that Hayes lost the popular vote by 250,000 votes, and, and he may well have it, but we just don't know for sure.
2: So the country is in limbo. November passes into December, no precedent. There's no constitutional precedent or outline for this situation where both candidates claim to be over the 185 electoral vote threshold. So the Congress creates what's called the Electoral Commission, 15 members, seven Democrats, seven Republicans, one Supreme Court Justice. Our friend uh, Congressman James Garfield's on the commission. There's one independent justice in the Supreme Court, David Davis from Illinois, an old friend of President Lincoln's. The Illinois Democratic Legislature comes up with an idea to nominate Davis for an open uh, U.S. Senate seat in an attempt to kind of curry you know, Davis's favor and make him cast a vote uh, for Tilden in the Electoral uh, Commission. The Democrats give Davis a seat and it blows up in their face. I feel like we have one of these on like, every show. Uh, but this would be episode six's massive political miscalculation. It's by the Illinois Democratic Legislature. Roy Morris tells us about the Electoral Commission of 1876 formed to decide the election
1: after election night and and all these several weeks of, of going back and forth. Congress was supposed to meet December to certify the Electoral College and, and certify the election. The Republicans Democrats wouldn't couldn't agree on on how to do that because there were three. Were four, counting Oregon, four different sets of, of returns, saying one thing that Hayes had wanted and one thing that Tilden had. And so it was, it was an, an impasse, and they came up with uh, an idea to make uh, a special electoral commission to rule on these cases. And they wanted to have 15 members, seven seven congressmen, seven uh, senators, and one Supreme Court justice, which would have been David David Davis, who was uh, considered the most independent of, of the Supreme Court jurists. Unfortunately for the Democrat, the state legislature in Illinois, which st- elected senators still at that point, uh, elected him to the Senate, thinking that that would, you know, make him even more willing to vote for Tilden. Davis he didn't want to be on the commission anyway because he wanted to run for president someday himself, and he didn't want, you know, half the country uh, blaming him for, for calling the election. So he, he essentially said he wasn't going to serve on the Electoral Commission, which uh, cleared the way for another Republican named Bradley to become the 15th, and essentially the swing vote on the Electoral Commission.
2: Hayes wins the Electoral Commission vote eight to seven thanks to Justice Bradley. The election controversy is not over. Things are heated. Imagine if Biden and Trump is not decided two months after the election. I mean, don't be completely shocked if that, if that happens. Don't say I didn't warn you. But we asked Dustin about a story we've always heard about this uncertain time. Hayes, still living in Columbus as the governor during the time, is a victim of a, an assassination attempt or a drive-by. Uh, we asked Dustin to did someone really shoot into the Hayes home in Columbus during the election crisis.
0: Uh, his son Webb later on uh, allows basically William Henry Smith's son, uh, our, our son in law, I think, C.R. Williams, who writes a volume of books. Um, where you, if you, if you want to go online and, and read Hayes's journal and letters and things like that, that comes from C.R. Williams in the early 20th century, who writes, um, who puts all of those digit, or sorry, publishes all of those, and then writes a two volume uh, biography of Rutherford. A lot of his information that he receives comes straight from from web Haze. Yeah. and he's just web just says, okay, this happened, and then Cr Williams writes it down, and so we're basically. We're basically hoping that what Webb told Williams and then what Williams transcribed to the public, all of that is accurate. Otherwise, we don't know. That's literally the only source we have uh, for multiple things. And this this uh, so-called shooting into the house is one of those things. If it did happen and we and that's the only reason we know about it, it's because, according to Webb, after it occurred, Rutherford Hayes told his family, don't tell anyone. We don't want this to get out. And so if, if, if it did happen and we don't know about it, that's the reason.
2: Democrats are seeing this election and it's slipping away. They're certain that Tilden won. It was a stolen election. Many Democrats start talking openly about forming militias and marching on Washington Install their man, Tilden, as the president, as the march inaugural approaches. The Democrats in Washington uh, are considering a filibuster to keep Congress from certifying the Electoral College results we ask Roy Morris if there's any truth to a march on Washington by Democrats to install their believed rightful winner of the election. Was there really a threat of another civil war at this point over the stolen election of 1876?
1: There was a lot of talk about it. I think tilden or blood was one of the slogans. And and people were talking about maybe we ought to form a private kind of democratic army and, you know, march on Washington and do that. But Tilden himself took the lead and said, no, we, you know, I can't really do that. It essentially wouldn't look very good if, you know, an army marched into Washington. And plus, they wouldn't have been able to do it anyway because President Grant, the greatest general in the Civil War, in my opinion, was president. And uh, he had already put the army on high alert and said, anybody tries to do anything foolish, we'll we'll respond forcefully. And also... Southern Democrats weren't, weren't really signed on to, to any kind of a, a new violent attack on Washington. They, when it came down to it, they were much more interested in getting these three Southern states redeemed than in putting a, a, a guy from New York in, uh, in the White House.
2: When George W. Bush was in the recount debate in Florida in 2000, he set James Baker, his dad's secretary of state, to aggressively push to end the recount and declare Bush the winner. His team of lawyers and surrogates was holding press conferences and pressuring election folks in the Sunshine State. Gore's team was a little more passive. Gore himself kind of slipped into the background of this debate. There's another similarity to the 2000 uh, election in this story. Samuel Tilden, the cerebral, introspective politician, kind of recedes from public view. It was passive, just like Gore, despite his supporters being super passionate for his election.
1: That's the real the real question, and no one could really say for sure back then, and, and you know I I couldn't either. Partly I think was his nature to be cerebral, careful, cautious, sort of uh, legalistic uh, personality. As I said in the book, people people under stress tend to react even more like their basic personalities. So Tilden spent the ser- several weeks after the election before you know when all this Controversy was going on. He he was working on this legal brief, laying out precedents on on why uh, you know he should be elected. And meanwhile, people were trying to get him to either just go to Washington and, and be declared president, or at least take an active role. And and he just didn't do it. I, it's also possible that he looked around and just thought eventually he was never going to be elected anyways. He kind of stood back, which is. And also kind of what Al Gore did in 2000, a lot of Democrats wanted him to to just declare that he was president and, you know, go from there.
4: Good evening, everybody. I'll make it quick and simple to beginning. The Supreme Court of the United States has reversed the decision of the Florida Supreme Court on three separate issues that were before that court on a very narrow majority. Five justices to four. Five voted to reverse and four voted not to. Just moments ago, I spoke with George W. Bush and congratulated him on becoming the 43rd President of the United States. And I promised him that I wouldn't call him back. Now the U.S. Supreme Court has spoken. Let there be no doubt. While I strongly disagree with the court's decision, I accept it. I accept the finality of this outcome, which will be ratified next Monday in the Electoral College. And tonight, for the sake of our unity as a people and the strength of our democracy, I offer my concession.
2: On March 2nd, 1877, Hayes has announced the winner, 185 to 184. One electoral vote. This is like two days before the inauguration set to take place. It's crazy. Think about that. The House of Representatives declared that their opinion that Tilden had won, The Democratic House, on March 3rd, but it was too late. The Senate had ratified the results, and Hayes is inaugurated on March 5, 1877. This has to be the weakest political mandate a newly elected president has ever had. I mean, Bush had many who doubted his election for years, but Hayes' presidency was really dogged by this perception in the first two years of his term. Hayes had already said that he would only serve one term, I think a move that might be wise for Biden to consider if he wins the election. Um, It's really not probably something you can do in these gridlock times, but Hayes did it in 1877. We asked Dustin about the cloud hanging over the Hayes presidency in the early years of his term in office.
0: Yeah, I think the early years is is a good way to put it. He's actually called Ruther fraud, of course, and his fraudulency and these these things. It almost seems like the, the, the Ruther fraud comes from Roscoe Conklin, actually the Republican, not the Democrats. So he gets this. Uh, reputation as being a fraud. He does become seen as this fraudulent president for at least two years of his presidency. And and a big reason why that may have turned is one, kind of what you were talking about earlier, his honesty and transparency. I think people started to really take him on, you know, after, and, and we've had a lot of revision on Grant's presidency and, and how good that was. Uh, people start to kind of move on from the from the weird election that happened.
2: Hayes has always been blamed by historians for single-handedly ending Reconstruction, or the idea known as the Wormley Hotel Conference that Republicans and Democrats meet at this Wormley Hotel in Washington and hash out an agreement to make Hayes president and end Reconstruction. That meeting happened, but that was not the result of that meeting. Hayes wasn't there, and the smoke-filled room idea kind of falls apart uh, on careful analysis. Uh, Roy Morris confirmed his belief that the Wormley Conference was a more recent theory that you hear like in the 1950s. Uh, And it doesn't really hold up. But we asked Roy Morris about Reconstruction fatigue in the end of the Reconstruction era. Did it really matter if Hayes or Tilden had been elected?
0: Yeah, I think the important word there is single-handedly, of course. You know, I, I get my Google Alerts for Rutherford Hayes, and every time they want to talk about a, an election or fraudulency, they always say that he then single-handedly ends Reconstruction and then brings in Jim Crow, right? Usher's in Jim Crow single-handedly as well. There seems to be this sort of indication that Hayes had uh, his hand in all of this in exchange for the presidency. It was like this corrupt bargain. right? It's obviously very simplistic, as you pointed out. This is something that had been going on for a number of years. By the time Hayes becomes president, what this comes down to, there were two Republican governors left in the South, and they were in South Carolina and Louisiana. In the midst of that, determining who was going to win, Grant actually orders the troops there to kind of protect the Capitol houses and see what's happening. Uh, He actually was going to Remove those troops and and send them back to their barracks before Hayes became president. So another thing that we should point out just here is that a lot of people say that Hayes removed all the troops from the South, which is patently incorrect. I mean, this is absolutely the troops. The same amount of troops stayed there before as after. It was just where they were positioned in the South. But he decides to to. To pave a new path. And what his hope is, is that by ending what he and others called the color line in the South, which is this idea that people are voting so specifically on race that they're forgetting about all of the other issues they should vote on. If we can remove that aspect from politics and focus on the other things, we're going to find a lot of men in the South who identify with Republicans more than Democrats. You know, these guys that used to be Whigs that are, that kind of moved to the Democratic Party because of the race issue. Uh, and he had hoped that through this, he would create a much bigger Republican Party outside of the North that, by the byproduct of its party stance, would then keep Civil rights in the South uh, it failed uh, yeah. it didn't work out, uh, but that was his plan.
2: Reconstruction was effectively over in the spring of eighteen seventy seven whether Tilden or Hayes had won, troops would have been pulled back. President Grant, if you go back and listen to our Grant versus the World episode, he had fought the good fight for seven years with the South uh, and fighting them with federal forces, propping up these reconstruction governments. but the moderate Republicans and citizens in the north. They'd had enough of this confrontation with the South. Reconstruction had been going on for 12 years, and it hadn't worked. Hayes made the decision to complete Grant's withdrawal, and Reconstruction fatigue, which was what I call it, it was a very real thing.
1: Grant had already put into place to remove the troops from Florida. The next Congress, uh, the Democrats controlled the House, and they passed a bill that said there could be no funding for, for Army troops in any southern state, Hayes really couldn't have couldn't have kept the troops there if he wanted to, because there wouldn't have been any funding to support them. So, and they had all elected Democratic governors anyway. And in the North, yeah, Reconstruction fatigue was a real thing. People uh, in the North were were really sick of, of essentially hearing about the South one way or the other, and they wanted to get, just get on with with regular life and, and getting the economy back in shape after. Uh, a really bad depression in, in 1873. So, you know, Reconstruction had run its course by that point, whoever, whoever was elected. And, uh, and Hayes, you know, was just sort of following the popular will, which, you know, any, either he or Tilden would have done anyway.
2: Hayes enters the White House during a very poor economic time in U.S. history. We bring back our guest economist, Professor at Georgia Tech, Zach Taylor, to discuss the panic of 1873 and how Hayes dealt with a serious recession when he entered office.
3: Hayes comes into office at the end of this terrible recession that got kicked off by the Panic of 1873. And if you remember the dot-com boom of the 90s or the real estate housing boom of the 2000s, same basic idea, except it was a railroad boom in the late 1860s, uh, supported by the federal government uh, with lots of land grants and favorable legislation from Congress, the railroads took off. Uh, during and then after the Civil War, and investors piled in. So it was an easy way to make money. And a lot of these railroads did not pan out. Many of them were never quite profitable. But there was so much money to be made that people bought up their bonds and their stocks, and a lot of Europeans got involved, and it created this huge bubble. So, as we get into the early 70s, people start pulling back. All the good investments got bought up, that leaves the risky ones, and some of those begin to fail. So, people start pulling back. And as they pull back, they, these existing railroads and the banks that let, lent to them can't pay off their debt. So, they begin to fail. So, you begin to get this domino effect again, sort of like the dot com bust or the housing collapse. Uh, more recently. So you get this big railroad collapse that turns into a banking collapse, and the stock market falls apart, the economy falls apart. Uh, and this is on Grant's watch. So Grant and Hayes both believe that the real threat was the threat to the dollar, because when economies collapse, there's a lot of pressure for governments to spend or print money in order to you know, provide capital to banks and to replace demand. When Consumers stop buying things. Nowadays, government steps in to replace that. That's what we've seen more recently. Back then, people wanted government to start uh, spending money on public works, but also to start printing money. So both Grant and Hay said, we will not devalue the dollar. We will not print our way out of this recession. Uh, And that hurt the economy for years. So they really had to suffer through it and grow the economy back to the uh, dollar. Nowadays, we do the opposite. Nowadays, when we hit a financial crisis, boy, you know, the Fed prints money and, and we, we still get hurt, but it's not as bad as uh, when we didn't. And we started doing this back in the mid 30s.
2: Our country has been the scene of national demonstrations for social justice this summer. It's been widespread across the nation, really across the world. Hayes faced a similar national emergency in his first summer in office, the Great Railroad Strike of 1877. It's the largest labor uprising in U.S. history at the time. It's in Pittsburgh, St. Louis, Chicago. It's in the east, in cities like Baltimore, and even here in Ohio. The transportation industry is shut down. The economy is stopped. We know what that feels like. But this was the first major opposition to the hyper-capitalist policies, this grotesquely poor wages working conditions uh, that you hear about for the American worker in the Gilded Age. And it's not just the railroad, it's all these different industries that strike in sympathy. Rutherford B. Hayes had empathy for those workers. and He holds off on intervening, but it becomes this national emergency. He's asked to intervene with federal troops by the governors, and he does so. It's those federal troops aren't really ones who kill the Americans, uh, like the railroad security and the state militias certainly do kill strikers, and strikers are violence towards them as well. But Hayes is in this no-win situation. We talked to Dustin McLaughlin about the great railroad strike of 1877.
0: As a scholar of Hayes, don't want to always make him look amazing. I think this is one of those situations, a poor way of handling the situation, or at least not having enough foresight in what he was doing. Uh, this railroad strike really takes off because this is the third time that these railroad workers had had their wages cut and and they did this very sort of um, intelligently in that they did not want to get the federal government involved so anything that was like federal mail they would attach and they would move through and then they wouldn't mess with it was very widespread as you pointed out workers struck workers went on strike but What's amazing about this particular strike is that it's more than workers. It's so much support that comes in. So many other people who join in to help this workers' cause. And there's been a lot that's written about it. Maybe it's family members and things like that. But there's also a lot of just citizens who were kind of upset with the railroad. You know, increased prices. Railroads were actually just... Plowing through towns, it wasn't like these these uh, safeguards that we have today. People would die as railroads would come through towns and just run people over. I mean, there was this uh, there was this this anti railroad feeling that was really sparking a lot of this, um, and it was widespread. It went from the East Coast as far west as Missouri. We see reports in in Indianapolis and St. Louis of of workers um, also striking there. Hayes, his response was to say things like, well, I I agree with the working man, but we can't have this destruction of property. That's how he said it. We can have uh, federal troops will not be used to stop the workers, but he didn't think workers had the right to do two things, of course, destruction of property, but also to keep other people from taking their jobs. Well, when you're using federal troops to keep people from, to keep workers from trying to keep others from taking their jobs, that is, in effect, a strike break. Yeah. And so he had uh, set in these federal troops. He refuses to use the federal troops unless he is asked the right way by the governors of the states to use those troops. And when he does that, he effectively breaks the, the, the strike. And, w- and we, we know that he knows that. Because he writes in his journal that the strike is broken by force. And he uses that phrase by force. He goes on to say things like, well, what needs to happen now is education. He's always a big supporter of education. If if workers were educated, if everyone was educated, this would not have occurred. Seems like maybe his heart's in the right place, but he doesn't have the foresight to realize that by using this precedent of federal troops, he actually sets a, a good precedent for 40 years of federal troops coming in on the side of business over workers asking for better wages or conditions.
2: President Hayes wrote in his diary, and I quote, The strikes have been put down by force, but now for the real remedy. Can't something be done by education of strikers, by judicious control of capitalists, by wise general policy to end or diminish the evil, unquote. In many ways, this battle between capital and labor goes on. This is the first major battle of national a variety that we see in 1877. I wish I could spend more time talking about it today. But Hayes would really get America's economy booming again. And he started a growth spurt that would last nearly 50 years in the establishment of America as the best and fastest growing economy in the world. But one way he would do that was by promoting economic growth in the American West. The national resources, copper, coal, forests, animals, silver, uh, settlements boomed in the West during the Hayes administration and very much turned around our economy. But as Zach describes, while the West was important to the economic turnaround, it also obviously came at a cost, a cost to the Native American tribes that had already been forced out West you know, earlier in the 19th century by settlers and by the U.S. government. We talked to Zach Taylor about how the West was won for white America.
3: So, again, this is this is a tough Uh, From a a thing to talk about, because from a pure, raw, cold economic perspective, you know, having modern capitalists invade the West and take it over and its water for natural resources brought a lot of economic gains. But it cost the native populations everything. Uh, They were almost totally destroyed. Uh, but this was a major source of economic prosperity during and after the Hayes administration. Uh, these territories and states out in the West had plenty of land, minerals, metals, uh, forest and animal resources, but they were still barely inhabited. Uh, I think only around two and a half, three percent of the U.S. population lived west and north of Nebraska at the time. Uh, mostly in parts of California, some sort of Colorado, but the other states and territories badly needed investment in infrastructure in order to grow. This meant bringing in investors and migrants to build farms and ranches, uh, to start mines, to lay down telegraph wire and railroad tracks, and to establish those networks and communities and commerce. And the biggest obstacles to investment in sell- settlers were not just the high cost and risk, but also the physical security. And at the time, this was Mexican uh, bandits and warlords in the south and Native American tribes in the center and north of uh, the west. And both the Grant administration and the Hayes administration had fairly brutal policies of assimilating these Native American tribes and moving them onto reservations and militarily suppressing them when when that was not successful. So by, there was an uprising in June, just a few months after Hayes comes into office in June, 1887. And Hayes permits the U.S. Army to pretty much mercilessly pursue these Native Americans north into Canada. And by October, uh, this tribe had either been killed, captured, or driven out of the state. And after years of intermittent warfare with Native Americans in that region, Hayes finally won sort of a conqueror's peace that would last a dozen years. Uh, it would take time to cement, but security in the West now markedly improved, at least for white settlers.
2: By 1878, the label of Rutherford B. Hayes begins to fade away as the American economy begins to boom. Hayes' steady, moderate, transparent leadership begins to pay dividends to this country. It's completely overlooked by historians, especially historians who rank Hayes in the middle of the back of pack or the bottom half of U.S. presidents but Zach Taylor joins us one last time this episode to talk about the Hayes economy in 1878 and beyond.
3: And people back then usually did not credit or blame presidents directly for the economy, but voters still would express their displeasure at the polls or their, their uh, uh, faith in uh, sitting legislators. So you get Democrats coming in on the back of these uh, panics and recessions uh, to take over seats so Hayes doesn't get credit but by summer 1878 people are seeing this so the magazines and newspapers at the time begin to carry stories of recovery uh, you see factories popping back up and their output coming uh, back online the prices of railroad bonds start going up so interest rates start coming down Uh, The dollar starts becoming more valuable on international markets. Um, The trade balance starts improving. So you finally get in the autumn of 1878, Hayes publicly telling people we've touched the bottom and we're now on the ascending grade. Uh, And then even the British, The Economist magazine over in Britain, begins to look at the U.S. and say, hey, the U.S. has recovered. There's a great quote where The Economist uh, in, I think it's mid July 1878, says, quote, in the, U- in the United States, the conditions of industrial production have undergone such a considerable change in the past five years that possibly that country is about to become our most formidable rival. So whereas the U.S. was just an interesting place to invest in the eight- before the 1870s, By the late 1870s, it's now rivaling Britain in its uh, industrial output.
2: Hayes gets very little credit for policies that he tried to protect African-Americans with from the wicked ways of the southern governments and their citizens. A lot of ways he gets little credit because they didn't work. We have to remember this man was an abolitionist. He fought for the rights of the freedmen as a lawyer in Cincinnati. He was wounded multiple times fighting the Confederacy to end slavery. We talked to Dustin about a series of important vetoes, Hayes declares during his presidency, in in response to a racist Southern takeover of the political scenes in those states. He tried to butt out federal powers to enforce these elections, and it would make him very popular among African Americans and Northerners.
0: This great battle that takes place over uh, funding the, the continually funding the, the federal troops um, in the South. There was a budget debate, and Hayes and the, the Democrats kept putting in writers saying cannot use federal troops to uphold federal elections. And Hayes, partly because of what you pointed out, He's, he he believes that men over the age of twenty-one, regardless of race, deserve the right to vote. But he also sees it as Congress attempting to weaken the presidency. This is one of the things the federal government should be able to, or to, to uphold federal elections. In a number of, of bills that are put before Congress that make its way to Hayes's desk that have this writer that says, you know, tries to remove that federal protections, he vetoes and he vetoes and he vetoes. And it's one of those things where this is where he becomes this very popular president at this time because it's so popular. It's so popular that you kind of wonder why the Democrats keep doing this. They keep sending this thing that he can veto and gain more popularity. He also um, nominates Frederick Douglass as the Marshal of Washington, D.C. Um, but yeah, like you said, uh, what he's remembered for, sadly, is that first thing he does when he becomes president.
2: Hayes was very much a president consumed by the myriad of domestic issues that face the country. America was not the world's policeman at that time. In fact, Americans had little to no interest in global affairs or being heavily involved with them. But our research did dig up one very interesting episode in the Hayes presidency, his solving of a war in South America. Hayes had negotiated a peace between Paraguay uh, when they were having a war, a bloody war, with Brazil, Argentina, and neighboring Uruguay. Rutherford B. Hayes is still renowned in Paraguay. One of the country of Paraguay's largest departments, as they call them, we call them states or provinces, is called Presidente Hayes. We asked Dustin McLaughlin about the admiration for our 19th president in the country of Paraguay.
0: He comes in as president, and there's this dispute over this, what's called the Triple Alliance War against Paraguay, so it's kind of <clears throat> awful in a lot of ways, and depending on how you read about this, there's really not a lot of good things to be said about the other side. We actually have had the last two Paragu- Paraguayan ambassadors to the Hays, uh, the Museum as they come through, and they often sort of create keep that connection alive there who often talk about how um it was this this war really to take paraguay and sort of uh destroy it Uh, paraguay uh, really fights back and, and holds its own against these three um and then it fights it to a stalemate to where they need to dispute or they need to arbitrate what's going to come of this disputed land called the chaco hayes Possibly, one historian wrote, and I don't know that I agree with this. I don't know how much uh, Paraguayans were thinking about Ulysses S. Grant, but he argued they argue that they thought they were going to get Grant to arbitrate this, not this new guy. But Hayes is the president at the time, uh, looks into it, and determines that the land that was in dispute should all go to Paraguay. So, sixty percent of Paraguay's uh, current landmass. Was sort of awarded to them by this Hayes uh, decision. That land is now called President Hayes. The capital of that region is called Via Hayes. They have soccer teams um, and, and schools named after Hayes. Uh, so it's a big part of their sort of, late, of their history. It really relies on on President Hayes. And yeah, it still continues today. As I mentioned, we get the ambassadors who come through
2: number of notable firsts occurred during President Hayes' administration. He's the first president to have a typewriter. Uh, he's the first president to visit the West Coast, to see California, to see the Pacific Ocean. Uh, he went in his final year in 1880. He's also the first president to have a telephone. He had the telephone installed in his first year. And I kid you not, the White House number, telephone number, was 1. Just had to hit the number 1. Also, uh, another first at, in the White House was it was a dry White House. His wife, known as Lemonade Lucy, uh, Hayes had a huge party the, his first couple of weeks in the office, and people just got really wasted, and it was really, it was a disaster. Uh, and he followed his wife's advice after that and made it a dry White House. Hayes leaves the White House in 1881. He Turns the keys over to fellow Ohioan Republican James Garfield. We all know how that promising presidency would turn out, Unfortunately, But President Hayes is very active in his post-presidential years, somewhat akin to like a Jimmy Carter. We have something in common, Hayes and I. um, Like myself, he served on the State of Ohio's Historical Society Board. Then called the Ohio State Archaeological and Historical Society, started in 1885. Hayes served on the board from 1888 to 1893, when he would die on January 17, 1893. Which happens to be the same day as the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy by U.S. businessmen in Honolulu. Yes, there's an Ohio connection. You can go listen to our show uh, from last year, Ohio vs. Annexation. Really one of my personal favorites, not just because I got to record some of my ukulele tracks as the bump music, uh, but enjoyed that one for sure. We visit with Dustin to talk about Rutherford B. Hayes' active post-presidential years.
0: He's also active, again, in this education reform that he's such a big fan of. And a big part of his action there goes to a scholarship fund. as president of the Slater Fund, which provides for scholarships for African-Americans. W.E.B. Du Bois actually asks for one of these scholarships, writes in for, and actually is refused uh, his scholarship. Wright Hayes quite upset. Hayes responds, well, why don't you apply again next year? We just didn't think it was uh, worthy this year. And so he does apply again the next year. and He receives uh, that scholarship. He goes back to his connections with Ohio State University. Matter of fact, he was in Cleveland interviewing a man to take over that uh, part of the school, uh, the mechanical school, and lead it. Uh, when he has his, uh, faith, his heart attack that would kill him, and he would um, be rushed back to Fremont um, and die in his bed uh, a few days later, January 1893.
2: As we close today, we're joined again by Roy Morris Jr., the great historian and author of Fraud of the Century, about the controversial election of President Hayes. After all these years we asked Roy, he wrote this book in 2003, if he still thinks the election was stolen. Roy points out that his main reason that he thinks Tilden was the rightful winner was the situation in Louisiana. That 8,000-vote difference on election night is too much in his mind to overcome. He's made some great points about that. We conclude with Roy Morris discussing the infamous election of
1: 1876. Yes and no. I I have to give Hayes more credit maybe than I gave him in in the book in that he, in contrast to Tilden, during this whole controversy... After the election, he took a very active role behind the scenes to to make sure that his people were were on board, and to actually reached out to southern leaders, uh, not in a crooked way, but just to see if you know they could find find uh, common ground and and indicate that he was you know going to be a moderate in, in these things, and and so he was really much more hands on in terms of of, of leading efforts. I think I said, you know, if he didn't really win the election, he he won sort of the post election. I still, I think the election was stolen. You can make a case that uh, that either Hayes or, or Tilden won won the votes in Florida and South Carolina, but in in Louisiana, Tilden had such a huge lead that I, I don't think you can really argue that that. Uh, mean they threw out 13,000 votes, especially in Louisiana, you would have had to have had pretty much every single African-American voter would have had to have voted for for Hayes. And the Republican governor, I believe his name was Packard, was so corrupt and so unpopular that a certain segment, I think, even of the black community was, was fed up with him. So I really don't think it was possible uh, that, that Tilden didn't at least win Louisiana. He had to only win one of those states. And, you know, as we've seen before and since, every election has shenanigans on both sides, and you can you could go back and forth. And for this election particularly, they, they just simply arbitrarily threw out votes, disallowed votes, uh, right and left. And I think a lot of, of, of modern historians kind of ignore this election in a way because they know it was... It really didn't didn't look good, but they and and ironically, Tilden probably would have been uh, at least as careful to to preserve African American rights in the South as, as Hayes turned out to be.
2: Our book recommendation is by our guest Roy Morris from Simon & Schuster, his book Fraud of the Century. Uh, This book Roy was working on before the 2000 election, before Bush v. Gore went to the Supreme Court, and there's a link in the show notes to buy this book. There's so much about this election we couldn't get into, like the single contested electoral vote in Oregon, which is a crazy story. That could have flipped the entire election and the atmosphere and the events in the country uh, as citizens considered taking up arms against each other in 1876. We asked Roy about, you know, why he wrote this book, especially since it was undertaken before the controversial election in 2000.
1: Yeah, I, I always, had always been interested in it, and I had uh, done an article years ago for American History Magazine about the election. Um, I remember, actually, my my grandmother uh, here in Tennessee used to talk about, she was very, what you call a, a yellow dog Democrat, and she used to talk about how Tilden had been cheated. And of course, you, you really don't hear about it. I didn't hear about it much, and so I got curious and started working on the book. And then 2000 came about and kind of gave it more more impetus. So, who <laughs> who knows who knows what uh, what lies ahead?
2: Thanks again to our guest David Simmons for talking about the founding of Ohio State and Governor Hayes's role in that. Zach Taylor for breaking down the Hayes administration's excellent handling of the economy. He'll join us again later this season. Roy Morris joined us from Chattanooga. He's the authority when it comes to the election of 1876, and we had so much fun talking with him. And, of course, Dustin McLaughlin from the Hayes Presidential Library and Museum. Go to rbhayes.org, or even better yet, make that visit to Fremont, Ohio. Go see Spiegel Grove yourself. You won't be disappointed. We talked to Dustin about the museum and the library in Spiegel Grove during this COVID-19 crisis and what visitors to the site can expect. Take the guided tour of the house would be my main suggestion, uh, but there's so much else to see up there.
0: You can come to the home. You can take a tour, guided tours of the home. We have, they take about 45 minutes to an hour. A guide will walk you through, take you through the different rooms. The first floor is completely uh, restored to look as it would have looked when Rutherford and Lucy lived there. Um, and then we do have a museum that you can walk through self-guided uh, on the top floor of that museum is where our library is and you can gain access to all of his papers we of course we have the gravesite we have the 25 acres of land a lot of the local Fremonters, that's the part they like the most they can just kind of come out and walk their dogs and walk around the uh the the acre the 25 acres of spiegel grove i mean
2: the home is just <laughs> beautiful man it's a really really cool spot and my wife, who's not a history buff, still says, you know, the Home yeah. is, is one of the best houses we've ever been in. I mean, just the way it's built, the way it's laid out. Yeah. Man, we, we took the tour and, and really enjoyed it. So it's not just yeah. for the history buffs, right?
0: no I mean we got really lucky um, in the way that it worked out for this site uh, his Hayes himself was quite a bit of a collector not only is the house very cool to look at like you said even if you're not a history buff but the things inside of it are still original to Hayes you know those the chairs and the furniture and all that stuff that was actually their things and, and we're lucky to have those things because obviously if you go like to Mount Vernon and it's no fault of theirs they just lost track of those things Things where things got moved or, or sold off or whatever, right? But because of over the years, a lot of that stuff isn't original to the home, and we just got really lucky that with between Rutherford and Webb, we still have all those things.
2: That'll do it, everybody. We are back the first weekend in August to talk about all those Ohioans who almost became president. We're joined by the creators of my favorite history podcast from 2019, the exceptional show from Wondery called 1865 should really start listening to that incredible audio drama. Uh, Netflix for your ears is what Stephen from 1865 called it. Uh, But start listening to that show. Really fun interview. We'll discuss some more modern presidential candidates from Ohio and really try to figure out why Ohio has had almost a 100-year drought without a president. This is a state that won 10 presidential elections in an 80-year period from 1840 to 1920. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Do me a favor, rate and review the show. It uh, really helps people find the program and, and share us on Facebook. Uh, tag us on Twitter at OhioVTheWorld. And follow us on Instagram. All kinds of content on there as well. And thanks for joining us and I hope you're enjoying your summer. We'll see you in a couple weeks.